0: Hello and welcome to the Sports Technology Podcast. In this, our sixth episode, we speak with Dr. Kim Blair. Kim established the MIT Sports Innovation Center and currently works with Cooper Perkins, a technology and product development company near Boston, Massachusetts. He also serves as president for the International Sports Engineering Association. More information can be found on our website, sportstechnologypodcast.com,
1: and by following Sports Tech Pod on Twitter. Enjoy! Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to our sixth episode of the Sports Technology Podcast. This week with us, we have Dr. Kim Blair. He's Vice President of Business Development at Cooper Perkins, also the Director of Cooper Perkins Sports Engineering Practice Group. The way I actually know Kim is he's the founding director of the MIT Sports Innovation Program. So he's a big reason why I got into the sports technology area and introduce Kim right now. Good morning, everyone.
2: Actually, it's morning where I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So we're doing this in the afternoon in the UK, morning in Boston. So with us today also we have Henry. Hello. And Brian. All right, guys. How's it going? All right. So um, why don't we just start off, Kim, with you introducing a little bit about yourself.
2: Absolutely. Um, first of all, I'd also like to say the other tie I have to Loughborough University is I have a visiting professorship appointment with the uh, Wolfson School of Mechanical Engineering, uh, which also houses the uh, Sports Tech Institute. So a lot of close ties. Um, my background is I'm a uh, engineer by training. I have uh, undergraduate degrees in engineering and psychology, interestingly enough, from University of Nebraska in the USA, and graduate degrees in mechanical engineering and PhD in aeronautics and astronautics from Purdue University, also in the USA. Personal interest in sports over um, a long career of competitive swimming in high school. Uh, picked up running more from a recreational standpoint in college and graduate school. And then eventually got into triathlon, started realizing when I was in graduate school, but although a lot of the things I was studying in the aerospace industry and uh, in the harder core fields of engineering were uh, quite interesting, I, I thought it would be great if I could figure out a way to tie together uh, my passionate love of sport, career in, in engineering and technology. Started right after I finished my Ph.D. I, uh, uh, my first project out of my graduate program was uh, working on a uh, NASA, U.S.-NASA-based grant, Where we were starting to model human astronaut performance during extravehicular activities inside of a computer with the idea that we can optimize their routines and the activities that they did on extravehicular activity maneuvers in a computer first. We can save them a lot of training time by ruling out any really bad sequences of events or events that would uh, overstress any part of their system. So started working on that for a while and then um, had made some connections with some colleagues at MIT here in the U.S., actually, interestingly enough, through a swim program I was swimming with, and uh, we started talking about putting bicycles in wind tunnels, and one thing led to another, and I... um, launched my program at MIT in uh, sports innovation and and product design.
3: So whenever you were starting to think about the sports technology, do you think you were one of the early adopters or one of the early thought leaders in that in America?
2: Yeah, there's no question I was one of the early thought leaders in America. And, and, you know, if you look across the U.S., there still are are very, very few programs uh, that have any type of, uh, sport and technology relationship outside of more of the classical cases of biomechanics and kinesiology and those things, but certainly from a product standpoint, um, there really were no programs at all in the U.S., and, and now there's just kind of popped up a couple discipline, a uh, couple focused areas. Uh, University of Colorado at Denver has a master's program, and then the uh, there's a materials-based program down at uh, Southern Mississippi, if I recall, where that is. So that was certainly one of the early ones, and, it, and it's still been very, very slow to catch on in the U.S., certainly lagging Way behind what we see in, in the UK and, and in the EU as well.
1: What do you think is the reason for kind of the lag behind it? Because obviously sports is huge in the US, and is it just still a disconnect with some of the companies or universities, or a combination of the both?
2: Uh, I think it's I think it's a combination of a disconnect of a little bit of both. I mean, I think uh, you know sports and recreation is seen as is kind of a hobby and not a real professional field, and I think that's seen not only in on the technology side but across all of you know all the entire business aspect of sport. Um, that's kind of ironic because uh, if you start looking at the sports industry in terms of dollars, uh, it, it's a huge industry, as you already pointed out, in, in the U.S., um, you know, in terms of product, in terms of uh, fans, in terms of team spending and all that, and it's a, it's a huge industry, um, but yet relatively little focus on that industry as a uh, as kind of a business unit, like, say, the automotive industry or the aerospace industry or the agriculture industry or some of those others in the U.S., Perhaps because it's a little bit more fragmented than some of those other industries and there's not a really good, you know, overall group, I think, that kind of takes a look at all aspects. I think, you know, a lot of cases the the business aspects of of running sports teams and and those kinds of things are very much separated from um, those interests of the uh, equipment and product manufacturers. And so it makes for a very uh, kind of a segmented segmented, segmented. Interest group from a business standpoint. Uh, the other, th- the other interesting thing is, is that uh, in the U.S., uh, and, and I certainly ran into this uh, with with the program at MIT. The the, the way U.S. universities handle intellectual property uh, regarding academic research is is a bit different than. Um, than, than, it is in a lot of other places in the world. And it's, it's, uh, the policies are designed in the U.S. around very long-term research, you know, the kind of the 10 to 20 year horizon research, uh, and the, and that licensing model whereby universities will own the IP of any inventions that are happened at the university during a research program with, with, uh, any sponsoring company having the, the right to, uh, negotiate a license after that. Uh, and that model works pretty well if there's, uh, if it's a really long-term research program where the idea is a very, very core research and core knowledge is, is, uh, developed at the university, but then the companies then have to, have to spend another, you know, five, six, eight years or whatever developing all the technologies that enables the use of that original core research, uh, and then have their own IP protection around that. The sports industry just doesn't do things on that long-term a basis as, as you know it's it's a uh, much more immediate need it's it's a three to five year horizon is forever in the sports industry in a lot of cases and um, so therefore um, you know that the true real basic research problems that are very fundamental uh, in nature just aren't handled in the sports industry they're handled in other industries uh, say materials or you know in those kinds of areas are handled more at that level and then the sports industry is, is in a lot of cases an early adopter of those research results, but uh, certainly not leading the charge in the research. So that makes for a little bit more challenging environment where, uh, it, to uh, align the interests of universities and, and the sports industry here in the U.S. as well.
3: It's, it's funny you say that because whenever, well, I envisage, although I envisaged a little, wasn't born around them, but I envisaged the, the technological innovations in sport. Back in the day, we say was moving from wood to metal, and you know, these big significant innovations which could have been patentable. And so it's only really in recent years that innovation is, I suppose the reason for that is to generate business, is that the innovation program is ultimately two to three years now. So it's probably a recent development rather than a, a rather than something that's long standing.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it is interesting. And, and you know, it's, uh, it's sports industry for a long time has been a very very much an early adopter and and if you look at some of the big transformations of sports industry to date a lot of those have been on the back of uh, other transformative events in in history or in industry and you know i think one of them is is uh, you know in the 1980s after the cold war ended uh certainly in the u.s uh, a lot of Information got declassified. There was a lot of aerospace companies that were making all kinds of very interesting materials and products and things that suddenly needed a whole new customer base um, because they didn't have the aerospace industry anymore. And that's, and if you start looking, that's, that's all of a sudden when all the, the really uh, exotic alloys started showing up, you know, the titaniums and the aluminums and, and, and materials. And then shortly thereafter, carbon fibers and those kinds of things, you know, so we saw the materials revolution in the, in the, uh, in the sports industry. You know now I think we're seeing in a lot of ways seeing an information revolution in the sports industry off the back of all the developments in in, in the internet and in that that uh, enables data sharing and all those kind of things. I mean, you know i don't I don't think any of us would 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 argue that the sports industry didn't you know certainly didn't invent the internet, but uh, the sports industry is certainly one of those that is is uh, being an early adopter and trying to figure out ways to uh, capitalize on that not not only from a technology standpoint you know with products like uh, the Nike Apple um uh integration um using data sharing but also in, in uh, you know more on the sports fan base side and you know Facebook pages for for, for sports teams and, and a lot of communication for sports teams and those types of things as well you know sharing statistics sharing information you know the internet ha- having enabled um, all the virtual you know virtual teams that that, that people can get involved with in, in in the different sports leagues and those kinds of things as well so it's uh, you know the sports industry uh Certainly, an early adopter and certainly pushes the limits of a lot of the technologies, uh, no question about it.
3: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because we always have this debate, or certainly in the last couple of episodes, we've had debates about what a sports engineer is or what a sports technologist is. And from what you're saying there, maybe a sports technologist needs to integrate with software development and programs on the internet and, and the rest, you know. What we were talking about before, uh, we're not materials engineers by by trade as such. I mean, there's definitely other industries in that. But what what is unique to sport is the fact that we have to understand the body and the physiology of the body and marry that with materials engineering and mechanical engineering. And now you're saying that we we'll have to go, or we have to certainly consider the the kind of internet revolution and computer science. So it's it's definitely it's a multidisciplinary field that we need to to understand a lot of things to progress. Yeah. Yeah, there's no
2: question about that. In fact, actually, I just, uh, uh, you know, as you know, I was at, at, at the uh, Sports Tech Institute last week, and on and on the flight home I was uh, writing an article for the Nebraska Society of Professional Engineers uh, that they have a monthly magazine or a quarterly magazine. I was writing an article for them, and, and I really felt like one of the first things that I needed to do, because most of the people in that society are – are you know certified professional engineers in, in the in a more traditional sense in the U.S. So they're you know civil engineers that build bridges or mechanical engineers that design you know motors or engines and and I really felt like I needed to kind of take a step back and, and try to explain what sports engineering or sports technology is and really started off by saying you know it's it's uh, it's probably the most uh, systems engineering focused discipline of any engineers out there because we certainly have exposure to all sorts of technologies, exposures to all sorts of information, information passing through, uh and and as very much as you mentioned, I mean also having to at least have a, a reasonable understanding of biomechanics, kinesiology, um and and even in some cases sports psychology. You know, if you're working with top athletes, it's it's also crucial to understand what's going on and, and how new product or how how uh trying to change something that uh, a, a very top level athlete's been doing for a long time may affect their their mental image of how they're going to perform.
1: Yeah, and it seems kind of like a branding issue for the sports technology field as a whole if you don't because it's a little bit a little bit of everything. It doesn't necessarily fall into one I know like at MIT it's in the aeroastro department. Here it's in kind of the mechanical engineering department. So every different place has a little bit different definition of it and kind of and in some cases it makes it a little bit difficult to bring a lot of people together, unless you have um, one physical location or something like that.
2: Yeah, so I would certainly agree, and, and uh, I'm also right now serving as president of the International Sports Engineering Association, and, and um, uh, as that as the whole field of sports engineering and sports technology evolves and develops, uh, you know, that is one of the things we're we're looking at uh, as as the ISEA is who who are our target members um, and. You know, what, what is it that we as an association can bring to them? What do they need? And, you know, branding is certainly a key part of it is, is, you know, we, <laughs> before, you know, before we can even go after our members, we need to define who our members ought to be. Uh, and, and why, and then once we define that, then, then of what service we can bring to them. Uh, and it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem in a lot of ways. And it, you know, I say problem because it just becomes the broader it gets, the more challenging it gets. It's, it's much easier to focus on a narrow little problem than it is to a, a big expansive one. But, um, uh, you know, the broader definition, I mean, you know, any, really it could be any, any. Anybody with an engineering or, or technolo- any, uh, technology background that has, that in some way focuses with the world of sport kind of falls under that umbrella in some way or another. And that, you know, that can be the people making the equipment. That can be people designing scoreboards for stadiums. It can be people, you know, designing turf for stadiums, you know, and, and there's just everywhere you look in the sports industry, there's a bit of kit or equipment or something somewhere that somebody's designing and building that has some impact on that sport.
3: I think it's exciting as well, Kim. I mean, in the Sports Tech Institute, we get people coming in from all different backgrounds, and certainly when we're designing products or thinking about products, first of all, we think about the materials and engineering and the manufacture and the concept. But then after that... We start thinking on the style and how that person's going to adopt it. And then you're looking into color psychology and how we perceive, you know, visual acuity and and all the rest. And it's just, it's just so exciting. And I hope that it grows. I'm looking forward to the way it
2: develops. Yeah. You know, I think it will grow. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, the, we're a long way from hitting critical mass here. I mean, I think the more the technologists and engineers get involved with these programs. Um, you know, the, the the more that the manufacturers will understand the value we bring to it, and, and the uh, and the benefit for the athlete, everyone involved. You know, one of the things that uh, we talk about a lot here at Cooper Perkins when we're working with with clients that are trying to trying to bring new product to market in, in the sports industry is that, you know, we talk about this cycle of the uh, the sponsor and the fan and the athlete, and it's a you know, you imagine you know a wheel going around, whereas the uh, you know the the athlete, uh, wants the sport, uh, the sport wants the sponsor. Let me, let me think about this a minute here. I'm that's not quite theory. getting it right. Yeah. Uh, so, so the athlete, athlete wants the sport, um, the sport needs the sponsor and the sponsor needs the athlete. And yeah, so you get true. this, uh, you get this circle. And so a lot of times you say, okay, well, how does whatever you're working on lubricate that, uh, that cycle to keep it moving?
3: That's interesting. I don't know if many, many brands certainly think about that. At the moment, currently product developers at the moment is quite a, a fractured design process in, in, in sports brands at the minute, maybe where whereby the product is, is passed on to the marketeers and the marketeers do their bit or vice versa. But never never really linked in as far as I, I've seen so far. So it might be it might be in a new discipline coming out of that. The circle from the Kim Blair circle or something. Like that.
2: <laughs> yeah that's it. <laughs> That, that would be nice. well, and the other thing too is and, and we see this all the time and I'm sure you guys have have, have uh, dealt with this uh, certainly around uh, some of your recent work in supporting uh, you know the, the uh, Team GV for for London 2012. but you know the other the other key one that's in there in that mix too is uh, regulate, regulatory yeah. bots. Um you know we certainly saw that uh, after 2010. With the uh, with Fina banning skin suits, and we've seen that several times in in cycling over the years, you know. And in the '90s, uh, you know, the UCI coming out and saying, "Oh, bikes have to look like bikes, and it's got to be a double diamond frame." And so, a lot of you know, very innovative bikes that we saw in the, you know, kind of in the '90s have, have since gone away. And you know, so there, you know, so you've got the governing bodies in there too that are that are that are playing in that same cycle and trying to figure out, well, okay, you know, what how much technology is good for the sport. I mean, if we design golf balls and golf clubs that, that obsolete every, every uh, country club in, in, in the world, because everybody's, you know, playing too long, then, you know, we've got a huge infrastructure problem too. And then, you know, now, you know, we're, we're affecting the athletes, we're affecting the fans, um, and, and therefore the sponsors as well, you know, and, you know, tennis has looked at that too over the years. You know, a few years ago they tried to, uh, tried to bring in a, a little bit larger ball and men's tennis with a little bit longer nap to, uh, slow the, uh, slow the power game down a bit, uh, because they felt like they were using, losing viewership and that didn't work out so well either. So, you know, everybody's, everybody's playing around with the rules a little bit to, to try to keep, try to keep that circle well, well lubricated.
3: You're talking about the biggest debate in sports, engineering and sports at all, so something that we can't Give good justice to you here, but I, I think it's fascinating. If
0: we're if we're designing to a point where the designs can no longer be within within the limits of the rules, or for for placing rules that constrain innovation, do you think they'll will reach a point where they where they take the, the C O R off a golf club head? They take that regulation out, or innovation will just find another pathway to to improve the sport. Or
2: well, I, I, yeah, I think that usually what happens is, um, you know, in, in a lot of cases, uh, not not in golfing necessarily, but but in some of these other sports I mentioned, like cycling and swimming and those kind of things, is, you know, a lot of the a lot of the justification that the governing bodies use for uh... instituting some of these rules is to try to level the playing field between the you know the rich teams and the poor teams of rich countries and the poor countries and you know what we saw or at least what i what i viewed that happened after the the uci rule changes in the nineties is well instead of you know instead of all these companies pouring money into um... you know designing the bikes uh... designing radical new bikes uh... they pour all the money into designing radical new bikes to fit inside the design <laughs> spec you know so it's uh... You know, change the focus of the innovation a little bit. Um, one might argue it made it a little harder to, uh, grab improvements, but, uh, you know, some good core science coming out of some of the major brands in cycling, you know, we still see improvements in, in, um, production and aerodynamic drag and a lot of those kinds of things that'll be on improvement. You know, swimming may be a little bit different, whereas, uh, you know, suddenly you've lost three quarters of the surface area you had to work with, <laughs> with, your, <laughs> with your innovation. So, uh, so that may be a little difficult. Golf as well, I, you know, I, Again, just simply because of the potential for obsoleting uh, so many golf courses, I you know I, I kind of think that there'll still be a dial back. I know that uh, yeah. the the USGA quite a few years ago had had requested um, golf ball designers to submit uh, s- prototypes of detuned golf balls for testing uh, by the USGA, um, and of course, none of them did that because. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't, they didn't want to have, uh, or at least I, to the best of my knowledge, none of them did that because, you know, first of all, they don't want to be sending prototype anything off anywhere because it suddenly it leaks out in the press and a competitive advantage. But, uh, you know, so the USDA was certainly looking at, um, even pushing some, you know, even pushing some regulations a little bit further. So I, you know, I, I don't see that, uh, that I can't see the pressure of them ever letting off of, of trying to keep some form of, uh, without the game getting too far because, You know, the other part part of it is, is is, um, you know, you lose this whole sense of history, you know, and people like to compare, you know, the golfer of today with, you know, the golfer of the 1920s or, you know, the cycling records today of those with, you know, way back when. And, you know, it becomes harder and harder to do.
1: Kim, you've been obviously involved in tons of sports projects throughout the years and a wide range of sports. Do you have any kind of highlights or any personal favorites that really been excited with the end result or kind of learned some... Pretty cool new insight.
2: Yeah, I think well, just because of my interest in you know personal interest in cycling and triathlon, I mean, I, I certainly have enjoyed uh, over the years working in the wind tunnel at MIT with the uh, with the various uh, cycling companies and professional athletes as well. And you know, one of the uh, one of the times I can I can really look at was back in. Uh, The the early 2000s, I had a chance to work with Ivan Basso and Carlos Sostra, who were at that time, you know, really up and coming in the sport of cycling. I mean, Ivan was certainly knocking on the door of the top levels of the sport and has has since uh, uh, achieved those, but just to, you know, really have a chance to work with uh, uh, world-class athletes at that level and, and really, you know, be able to help them. I mean, you know, we spent uh, a, a day with each of those guys in the wind tunnel, and and uh, you know, I know that uh, Yvonne, the year before he was in the wind tunnel, and 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 the year after, I mean, he jumped from like 22nd to sixth in the final time trial of to the Tour de France, and you know, so it's it's hard to make that kind of leap in performance, you know, without. Some major change. I mean, you just can't g- gain that over a year's worth of training. And so, uh... you know, we look back and, and do some modeling of the data we saw in the wind tunnel, and you know, map that onto the courses, and you know, the, the reduction in drag, and you know, figuring relatively constant power output over those two years. And you know, that's, that's within about two or three percent of where we thought he should be based on that, you know, a day in the wind tunnel. So.
0: Is that the posture and slight adjustments with the elbow angles, for example?
2: Or yeah, that that's exactly right. That's okay. exactly right. It was, and I would say the, the adjustments weren't necessarily slight in this case. Uh, it was the first time Ed had ever been in a wind tunnel. So, uh, this was all fairly new for him. And, and, and at the time that he came in far off an optimal position for time trialing. And, uh, we made some pretty significant changes. And, and I don't remember if it was either Von or Carlos said after we got all done you know we asked him we said well this you know we boy we made some pretty radical changes to your uh, to your position you know do you think you're going to be able to use these uh, during the race and they were all within legal limits and all that and um one of the two responded to me and again i don't recall what it was just said they said what at i mean they said well of course we will. It's our right. job. <laughs> so um, you know, it's that's uh, that uh, it was an interesting response. As
0: an amateur cyclist yourself, yeah. is this something you look forward to in, in the future as a as an option for the general consumer? Like, would this become perhaps part of a bike fitting? Uh, procedure: the an aerodynamic tuning of your posture and placement. Yeah,
2: we've we've uh, over the years um, we've done quite a bit of that with uh, amateur riders uh, as well as uh, some of the pro riders, and you know myself included. A lot of members of the MIT cycling and triathlon teams as well, and. Um, you know, early, early on we found that there was a huge performance advantage, uh, game with wind tunnel testing. And one thing about wind tunnel testing we have discovered in, in aerodynamic position, what we have discovered is that it's a little hard to eyeball. Um there are some things that you know you get some kind of general rules of thumb to work with, but every once in a while, you know, just depending on somebody's flexibility or, or whatever, what worked for one rider may not work for the other. However, as that's evolved more and more people have gotten tested and, and people have gotten a better feel for what is aerodynamic. We're not seeing riders come into the tunnel anymore and being able to get huge, huge percentage improvements. I mean before it was it was pretty easy to get a five percent improvement. Five to ten was was not hard to get at all. And and now the cyclist has been fit by a well trained bike fitter, um, to really understand what's what's going on. And I'm saying outside of a tunnel, fit outside of a tunnel. It's not hard for them to uh to get, you know, well believe you know, well well within five percent of optimum even for that. And so, you know, as time goes on, the uh and more more and more fitters become good at uh, understanding positioning how it affects aerodynamics as well the the added value of the time in the wind tunnel is becoming more and more reduced
3: would you say kim um, i don't know in your experience or whether you've tested it but you've seen in the bikes that they've become more aero there's certainly the aero time trial bikes and the aero helmets have you, have you seen a difference in performance because of those innovations
2: oh yeah there's no question about it i mean it's uh it's we started a few years ago looking at uh, a metric we called uh dollars per second <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, you, you used to be recycling cycling that uh, weight was everything, you know, back in the 80s and everything. And and, and there used to be, uh, well, in the early days of the Internet, there used to be these websites for uh, what we called weight weighties back then where, you know, you could go and everybody measured everything and post, you know, yeah. down to the hundredth of a gram, you know, what all these parts were. People were drilling holes in pieces and, you know, trying to get rid of excess material. And so uh, we started looking at the same thing and with our wind tunnel testing, started – Started taking a look at commercial products that were out there, and you know, trying to give a rule of thumb of, of dollars per second. So if you buy an aero an helmet or an aero wheel, or you know, replaced your frame with an aero frame, you know, how many how many um, dollars per second they gave you in say a 40k time trial? And, you know, and certainly for it was for a while there, you know, about three four years ago when the uh, aero helmets first came in vogue. And again, that was a rule change that, that drove that whole industry. Is that uh, once again a couple months before the Tour de France, the UCI basically said, okay if you guys want to wear aero helmets, uh, they have to meet the crash impact standards. Whereas before, they used to be just a shell. Uh, there was no impact protection. It was purely for pure aerodynamics. And then suddenly all, all the uh, helmet manufacturers were making these aero helmets. And, of course, recreational triathletes and racers had to have crash protective helmets at that time uh, certified. And so suddenly they had a little market. And interestingly enough, one of the first things we found – well, some of these helmets coming out was that, um, you know, the, the, uh, the time savings for an arrow helmet was greater than the time savings between swapping from uh, you know, a good set of regular wheels to a really expensive set of uh, of aerodynamic wheels. Sense. Yeah, and, and it was, uh, you know, and especially if you look at the dollars per second, I mean, it was huge. And, and I remember the first time I was in front of a uh, cycling industry uh, group, and the first time I, I presented that poster, I could just hear this collective gasp in the room. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I said, well, I said, you know, that may sound like bad news, but I said, the reality of it's not bad news because I said, you know, the person uh, who can, so you know, the athlete who can afford those race wheels are going to buy them. You know, that they're going to have them regardless. I said, now what you have is you have a whole new line of product that you can sell somebody that may not have, you know, the two, three thousand dollars that they need for a set of race wheels, but may have, you know, three, four hundred dollars that they're willing to spend to get faster. So now you have something you can sell them, whereas, you know, before you didn't have any. Um, so it, you know, it's uh, definitely seen some improvement there.
1: Right. And it definitely seems that part of our jobs as sports technologists is to. Be the salesman for either, like in cycling's case, you have a fairly kind of technically advanced consumer. But in some other sports, it takes a little bit of of prodding and artfully describing what the technological innovation and how it will help you kind of drop seconds or improve jump height or something like that. So a combination of a a lot of things, depending on on the sports that you're looking at.
2: Well, well, I think we have a slowly evolving responsibility and you know, in general there we don't see I mean beyond safety standards, we don't see a lot of standards for sports equipment, uh, marketing claims and you know, I mean certainly there are there are uh, lawsuits where people file things. I think one of one of the responsibilities we have as sports engineers and technologists is to to try to educate the public on um, on some of these facets of, of the technology in the sport and what it does for claims for performance improvement. And I would say in a lot of cases over the last you know over the last few years as as companies have gotten more sophisticated and the consumers have gotten more sophisticated. You know, I, I would like to think across the board that the, the marketing speak has gotten a little more sophisticated. Uh, in a good way, and actually representing data in in, in real ways, and, and companies are getting better about actually uh, doing a little bit more controlled testing when they're pre- presenting performance results. You know, we certainly, the IACA or any of those organizations, aren't really starting to police those kinds of things and, and developing and have not really looked into developing standards for, for performance characteristics. But, uh, you know, it, it's certainly one responsibility I think we have as practitioners in this field is to, to at least in some ways, to try to help educate the public on on um, what it is that they're buying.
0: Practical concern as well. So I think a lot of the, I'd imagine a lot of the new, new developments, if they're explained technologically, are just kind of lost on the public. We need to be able to justify everything, but um, in, order, in order to get people to buy things. To for our, for our young listeners, or for our, for our professionally nope. developing listeners, what advice would you have? Um, for people looking to combine uh, engineering and sports, I,
2: I think it's uh, you know the, the in spite of the size of the dollar the dollar size of the the, uh, the market and everything, I think that uh, you know those of us who've been able to combine a career in sports and in engineering, all of us I think feel fairly lucky. It's not a huge it's not a huge field, and it's a pretty tight community. And I think. Uh, Certainly, some good interdisciplinary education in in not just engineering, but uh, in in business or psychology or product design. You know some of the core fundamentals of those areas, so that uh, you know you can speak with the marketing departments and and those kind of things uh, on on everybody's in their languages as well as your own. So I think uh, accenting uh, your core engineering knowledge with with some of the you know quote softer skills or uh, the business related aspects are very helpful in, in getting your place. I mean you know throughout your career path anything you can do to, to get closer and, and make some connections uh, in the industry is you know as with any career path you're on is is uh is essential uh, and probably more so in the sports industry just because it's a little bit smaller and it's you know look for the opportunities for internships programs where you can get involved and, and make a few contacts in the industry and get some industry specific uh industry specific uh, experience on your resume
3: would you say kim that you still you still need to
2: get a university degree
3: to get into this field or is there any opportunities for um, apprenticeships or moving?
2: No, I think I, I still think that the, especially the engineering and technology side. I mean, that that's such a core piece yeah. to have that that uh, at least a bachelor's degree uh, yeah. Yeah. In, in in those areas to get into the end of the field. Um, you know, the apprenticeships and things like that are are good. And you know, if you're going to maybe stay in a manufacturing role or something like that, that may be possible. But certainly, if you want to get into the to the actual product design and product development aspects of it. Uh, where you're actually designing an engineering product, you've gotta have, you've gotta check that box to to get there. i kind to
1: of wrap up with one more question. You know, maybe you can just talk about any of the current projects that you're working on or anything coming up with the ISEA or yeah. if you can maybe speak on some of the, the Cooper Perkins or MIT projects you're working on. And know
2: well, one one thing I would say is, uh, uh certainly yeah. with the International Sports Engineering Association, I, we've not had a conference in the U.S. since, uh, California Davis. University of California at Davis uh, let's say maybe two thousand. Wow. Six, was that one? Uh, 2000, 2004. i uh, trying to remember what year that was, and it's been a long time, and so actually the uh, 2012 conference was going to be University of Massachusetts Lowell uh, in August of 2012, so that'll, that's, that'll be a nice event, I think. Well, I'm sure it will be, and it'd be great to have it in the U.S. again uh, after a, a long absence and, and turn around Europe so that, uh, you know, hopefully we'll see uh, a, a large contingent of uh, the U.S. and our, our normal colleagues and friends from, from uh, Europe and the U.K. as well at that conference. As far as projects that we're working on, it's Difficult to, uh, uh, you know, to call anything out that's really current just because of uh, proprietary issues. But, you know, one thing that I think just some general trends is is certainly in the the cycling space, uh, because of the wind tunnel we have at MIT, there's always, you know, and and student interest, we're we're always – uh, looking to improve our test platform there to get better data, to be able to test more aspects, uh, narrow in on on specific aspects of, of um, aerodynamics and cycling and, and how that relates to to equipment design. Uh, we designed a couple of rigs over the last couple of years that uh, allow us to really take a look at some of the finer aspects of uh, the interaction between, you know, the bike wheels and the bike frame and a few things like that. And, and you know, hopefully in another uh, year, year and a half or so, we'll have some good publishable results. Uh, coming out of that as well the uh the other thing too is as i mentioned the information technology side i mean it's that's one of the things i've been talking about uh quite a bit now for years and years is you know the 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 80s being the the uh you know, the revolution of materials in sports. And, you know, certainly we see evolution now. I don't know that it's revolution of materials in sports, but, you know, really the, the whole future of information. I mean, there's you know, with so much improvement in in uh, sensor technology and, and uh, size reduction and, and even battery power, which a lot of times is, is a, a, a key issue, is, is how you power all this stuff. Uh, you know, sensors are getting smaller and becoming less and less invasive. You can put them on, on different things and, and uh, You know, as long as we keep that whole cycle of of sponsor, fan, and athlete in mind, I think there's a lot of opportunity to, to to develop new. New measurement systems and for data sharing and, 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 you know, athlete performance enhancement and those kinds of things. And, you know, certainly a lot of projects I've been working on over the last few years have been very, very focused on that.
1: Awesome. So I think we'll wrap up there and thanks again for the conversation. Like a really great overview of the, your background as well as kind of the sports industry as a whole. Thanks very much, Kim. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you.
2: Uh, you're quite welcome. Thanks for the conversation, gentlemen.
0: We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. For more information, check out sportstechnologypodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at Sports Tech Pod. Thank you.